Church Bibles, uh, Psalm 145 is on page 722, 722. We'll be reading Psalm 145, starting at verse 8. And if you listen to this reading this morning and listen to the song that we just sang, we're going to hear some similar words. And 
uh, there was a description in Exodus when, uh, when God walked by Moses and there was a description given of God and it seems like here David took that description and he even uh, gives us a better description of, of who God is. And that's why we're here. We're here to worship God. We're here to honor him uh, because it's all about him. And at the same time, we need reminders. So to all of the moms this morning, happy Mother's Day. Okay, let's read together. <clears throat> Psalm 145, we're going to start at verse 8 and read through verse 13. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Amen? Yes. He is slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies, his tender mercies are all, his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Amen. We're going to remember uh, Abigail this morning, who's not feeling well, but uh, is on the mend. And uh, we'll keep praying for you, Linda. And uh, let's pray. We thank you, Father God, that you allow us to come here freely and openly to worship you, to give you thanks. And thank you for these songs, Lord, that have been selected, that we can sing our hearts out in praise to you. And we ask that you would receive our worship and receive our thanks. You are most worthy, Lord. All of the glory is yours. All of the power, Father, all the dominion, all the majesty, it belongs to you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this gathering for each one here. We lift up those that are fighting illness and fighting physical uh, issues, Lord. Thank you for being with Abigail and blessing her with healing, for being with Linda and blessing her with healing, Lord, and for those others that, uh, that are in need. We ask for your mercy and your grace upon them as well. Be glorified today. Uh, be with us, Lord, as we share in your word. And bless each listener, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Without hope, no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began, 
left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah.
Well, good morning. It is awesome to be with y'all today. A few weeks ago, I was at a restaurant with a group of acquaintances. And at some point in the discussion, uh, church attendance began as a topic. And so for the six or seven people that were at the table, each began to mention where they attended church, uh, what denomination they belonged to, or kind of what their beliefs were. Most of them even cited a reason for their commitment to a particular church or denomination, such as their family's roots, connection to the pastor, or proximity to their community. So my point is not to criticize or even speculate about their sincerity of involvement in worship, but instead to recognize what was surely implied for those to attend church, and that is salvation. Salvation was implied. I want to highlight today what I believe is a far greater danger than denominations or preferential worship attendance but the heresy of once saved, always saved. Today we're going to continue our study in John's Gospel, chapter 10, which is, which is where we've been for several weeks. But I want to first lay some groundwork for, for this passage that is critical for our understanding in John. Now whether you're familiar with this idea or not, once saved, always saved is theologically and practically a pillar within most churches. It is a false doctrine that suggests that once a person is saved, their salvation is eternally secure. That nothing that they do or don't do can separate them from God's sovereign salvation. This false doctrine, and I'm going to continue to refer to it, once saved, always saved began with the teachings of a man named John Calvin in about the 1500s. Now before this, no one believed this type of idea, uh, and, and it simply did not exist. Now there are some scriptures in our Bible that taken out of context and given a superficial understanding can seem to support this idea, but it is not a truth that is rooted in scripture. Instead, it is a lie that is founded by manipulation and mincing of God's word. Now, there are many scriptures that, uh, that, that refute this idea. In fact, if we read from Genesis to Revelation, we see that this teaching is quite heretical. But I want to begin with two scriptures for us to see why this, this teaching is simply not true. So turn with me first to the book of Jude. In the church's Bible, it is on page 1405, just near the very end of the New Testament. Book of Jude. Jude is a single chapter, so we'll just read verses 3 through 5. Read 
Read with me in verse 3 through 5. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God our excuse me, Lord God and our Jesus loved excuse me, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is writing to the church some very important words. He says, you know what it means to be in salvation with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it means to have given your life to him and to have walked with him. But we should not remember the fact that we also know that we can leave fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. For some have crept in. Some have crept in and taught this false teaching that it's okay to return to sin, to return to our own ways, and to bring that into God's holy people the church. He said, I want to remind to you the first story of deliverance and God's love story is delivering the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. You remember we've been studying these things about the Passover and about unleavened bread and about first fruits, how God delivered his people out of bondage. He says some of those who saw God's hand of deliverance returned to not believing in him and refused him and for those God destroyed turn over just a few pages to Revelation chapter 3 Revelation chapter 3 on page 1409 a few years ago we studied in Revelation and in the first few chapters John who writes this book at the request of Jesus after seeing him in a vision John writes to seven different churches that really represent the entirety of God's people in seven different situations where churches had been led astray by false teaching, by lies of the world. And there's a word that appears to each of the seven churches. The word is overcome. Some translations say conquer. And what it is that Jesus is telling believers to overcome is the world is the false teachings that exist in the world, to overcome their flesh that wants what it wants, to overcome sin that leads us into darkness. We must overcome every sin. Read with me in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. John is writing Jesus' words. So these are red letters. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He does not say, if you've made a proclamation of faith one time in your life you are good to go it is done it is secure you cannot leave my presence no he says this is Jesus he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life 
I begin with these scriptures that are rarely used to talk about salvation because we should see salvation not in the verses we see on t-shirts and coffee mugs that make everything seem warm and fuzzy and wonderful and easy. The reality of salvation is it is a decision that we have made if we have and a decision we keep making. It is like being married to someone in a relationship with somebody. It's not enough to pass a note in class. It's not enough to to stand on a stage and give a vow one time. It is something we are to continue to do. Often the, the things that people sow into this idea of salvation would not work in any other relationship, right? We would not keep company with those who didn't want company with us, who didn't like our ways or our jokes or spending time with us. Yet we have these ideas about salvation that the world has swirled around and manipulated for its vanity. This false teaching is a stronghold in many churches. As I was studying this week, um, I was devastated, to say the least, by what I saw from many what we would call church leaders. Dr. Charles Stanley is a prominent figure in the church. You may have heard of him, you may not have heard of him. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta for over 50 years. He had a nationally syndicated, well still does, televangelist show uh, that ministers to hundreds of thousands and millions around the world. He says this regarding salvation. Even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. Believers who lose or abandon their faith will retain their salvation. He also teaches, quote, You and I are not saved because we have an enduring faith. We are saved because at one moment in time we express faith in our enduring Lord. Now, these are arresting statements. They are heretical statements. They are completely out of alignment with God's word and what the Bible teaches. These are not sound bites. These are not taken out of context. These are statements you can Google and see directly in his messages and in his writings. They are exactly what he means. He believes that salvation is a one-time pledge to Jesus And that's all that is required. And after that, nothing that we can do will forfeit our our salvation. I want to give you a few scriptures to see how completely false this understanding is. Let's first go to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1381, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll read verses 26 through 36. The writer of Hebrews says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, again, excuse me, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days in which, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were, who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you, have, for you have need of endurance, so after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, I know this is a long reading and a lot to grab a hold of here, but in verse 26, we are told there will be no restitution, no sacrifice for one who willfully, willfully rejects the Lord Jesus here. The word, the emphasis is on the word here, no longer. Which means spiritually, in a sense, God has paid the sacrifice. Jesus has paid the sacrifice for sin for eternity. However, if we willfully reject and refuse to see sin in our lives, if we refuse to be changed by God's truth that he continues to give us, then there will no longer remain a sacrifice for sin. The consequences for such a person is judgment and fiery indignation, which is the ultimate punishment for someone who has received knowledge and understanding from the Lord, yet refuses and chooses not to repent and to align with him. This is the picture that we read in Paul's writings in the New Testament that talks about those that practice sin, not those who accidentally walk into sin, not those who, who, whoops, I didn't know this, Lord, I didn't mean to offend your holiness, but those who know sin and continue in it. For those, there no longer remains a sacrifice. In verse 36, writer of Hebrews says, for you have need of endurance. This is the opposite of what we read in a quote from Dr. Charles Stanley, that we can do whatever we want, that once we've made this decision, easy peasy, we're in the club. No, that's not what scripture says. The writer of Hebrews says we have need to endure. Turn with me next to Colossians chapter 1. Go back to page 1353 in the church's Bible. Colossians chapter 1. Let's read together in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now you all know how I feel about this word, if. If is the most significant word in this passage. See, many just kind of gloss over if as if it's already done. Instead, what Paul is saying is we should really begin with the verse 23 to, to see if. If we continue in the faith, if we are grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we have heard, which he says everyone has heard and had an opportunity, if we do that, then, go back to verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him and all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus' work in the cross reconciled all of our sin. If we continue. See, we're so simple in our mind that we can't, we can't see time in multiple dimensions here. But things are happening at the same time. And in the future, there is a sacrifice for our sin if we remain in him. We are going to sin. It is going to happen. We're going to learn of things that offends the Lord, that, that we have broken his commandment in a way or in another. And there is a sacrifice for us if we remain steadfast, if we remain with him. But if we don't, there isn't. In a message a, a few weeks ago, Charles Stanley taught about grace and continuing sin. I've been wondering if his stance has changed on some of these things that he's taught on. Like once we are saved, we're always saved. And we can do whatever we want and none of it really matters because we'll go to heaven and everything will be fine. I listened to a message that he recorded just a few weeks ago, I think on April 22nd. He says that if a person is saved, sin cannot terminate their relationship to God but it can destroy their testimony, fellowship, joy, peace, happiness, and purpose for living. He also says that regardless of your sin, you cannot exceed the grace of God. In other words, we cannot out-sin the grace of God. We cannot go spiritually bankrupt, so to speak. There is a never-ending balance in the bank for all the sin that we could amass. These are false teachings that invite people to take advantage of God's grace and worse the enemy uses to lead people out of covenant with God knowingly and unknowingly turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 over just a few pages to back a few pages to 1341 Galatians chapter 5 Galatians chapter 5, page 1341. 
Paul says this in verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we, if we can do whatever we want, once we walk an aisle, say a prayer, check a box on a piece of paper, if we can do whatever we want and inherit eternal life, why would Paul, the apostle, sent to the Gentiles like us, write to six or seven churches a similar thing to say, if we continue on in sin in the ways of the flesh, which you all know, I mean, he gives us a list and he says, you all know all of these and all of the things that are like them. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So either Paul, who has written the majority of the New Testament, is out to lunch and doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the world has been overtaken by this false understanding that we can do you. You can each do you and do whatever you want, and it will all be okay, because on that last day, Jesus will just say, it is okay. That's not truth. Not only will it rob our salvation for eternity, but it will steal from our lives right now and invite destruction from the enemy. Paul writes these words sandwiched in between instructions on walking in the Spirit. You might even see that in your Bible there's a subheading in chapter 5 that says walking in the Spirit. Paul is talking about what it means to walk not according to our way, but the Spirit of God who directs us and gives us understanding and purpose. And in the midst of this Spirit sandwich are these words to warn us. This is a hard word today. I know it. But this love story that we, we open up, this, this front-to-back love story is also filled with warning. Because these warnings are to be understood by a loving God. As we read these scriptures that we've read, does it sound like we have God's permission to continue sinning? Does it seem like our sin won't separate us from God? Or is scripture consistent in its revelation that those who remain in sin, who willfully choose these things, are an evil and opposed to God's ways? Not only will they not inherit the kingdom of God, but they will be separated from his presence. If you want to look at a few more scriptures, we'll not read them right now, but you can read in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, they, they give an even fuller picture and corroborate this idea that is throughout Scripture, that sin and evil will destroy us and separate us from God. Now, why do we go through all of this? Because this is, all, this is a lot, this is heavy duty. Because once saved, always saved is a heresy. It is a lie in all its various forms little bits or all together it is a manipulative twisting of God's truth 
And I believe that it has put many at ease in churches like this, in pews, in chairs, in their homes listening online, to think that they cannot lose their salvation and they don't need to overcome sin. Our main passage today is from John chapter 10. So if you turn with me there, John chapter 10 on page 1236. John chapter 10, page 1236. We've been studying in John for, chap- for several weeks now. And most recently, Jesus is using the understanding of himself as the true shepherd. Deborah taught this incredible message a few weeks ago on, on Jesus as the shepherd to his sheep. The thing is about sheep is often they, they do what they're told. Um, mostly because they're, they're dumb. Sheep are dumb. They're not the lambs that we see in cartoons that are sweet and precious and clean. They're really filthy, disgusting animals who really have their own way. They're rebellious. They're ornery. And they are, I'm going to say it again, dumb. Jesus uses this understanding to describe his relationship with us. He's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to be cruel. He's not even trying to be funny. He's being honest that we are like sheep. That often we have this outward perspective on who we are, that things are great, that they're grand, that we're beautiful, that, that we are in covenant with Jesus, but in reality we are stubborn and rebellious. And if we're not careful, we can be dumb and led away from the shepherd who's trying to care for us. So we, we read on today in chapter 10 with this understanding in mind. Read with me from verses 22 to 30. John says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. And I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This is a a, a wonderful passage, and it it, it's often one that is used as a, as a proof text, as a, as a, I can stand on this verse to know that I'm once saved, always saved, right? Jesus tells those standing there that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. If we didn't know the Bible, if we didn't know the love story of God and the salvation of Israelites and Hebrews and Egypt and Jesus on the cross, we might think, oh, okay, great, we can never be snatched out of God's hand, right? But scripture tells us all too well that that would be misunderstanding what he's saying here. There's a few things that are important to kind of imagine the scene of what is going on. First, it says in verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. So, Already we know that it is around uh, December, it is winter time, and so this passage is disconnected a little bit from the one before it. 
It is not right next to it where he is arguing with some Pharisees and Sadducees. This is somewhat of a new group. And this is important to us because we know about Hanukkah. It is a feast that we celebrate. The feast of dedication was important for them because they remember celebrating the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. Also celebrating the victory of a band of Jews named the Maccabees who refused to commit idolatry and making sacrifices to false gods and subjection to evil leaders. See, about 150 years before Jesus is saying these words, um, God's people, the Jews, were in subject to the Seleucids, who were uh, a Greek army. And they decided that they didn't want the Jewish people to worship Yahweh any longer. So they established false altars where they were required to sacrifice pig's blood on the altar to Zeus, to Hercules, to all of these pagan gods. And a family named the Maccabees had had enough of this, and they revolted. Uh, there was a great battle over many, many years before the temple would be regained by his people, by the Jewish people. And so they rededicated the temple, and they cleansed the temple that had had all of these false gods brought in, all of these false altars made, all of this pagan worship. So this sets the tone for the things that Jesus is talking about. Next it says in verse 24, the Jews surrounded him. This wasn't a friendly surrounding. They weren't gathering around him to hold hands with him and have a sweet conversation. No, these were Pharisees and Sadducees who were angry with Jesus. We read again and again that they sought to stone him. So they gather around Jesus with rocks and boulders ready to take his life. Imagine bullies on a playground surrounding somebody that they wish to beat up. And that's what they're doing. They're ambushing Jesus. This word here that we read surrounded actually means to ambush or lay siege. They're not just gathering. They are aiming to ambush. We've got to understand their question in this context. They ask him in verse 25, or excuse me, later in verse 24, they say, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They're not asking kindly, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is going to return to restore Israel to power and prominence? No, that's not what they're asking. For these are people who knew the scriptures, they knew the prophecies. They've been following Jesus around. They've seen his ministry. They've seen the things that he has taught. This statement, how, do you keep, how long do you keep us in doubt? Word for word, it means how long will you hold our souls in the air? How long will you keep us suspended? It implies that Jesus is holding them captive, that he is restraining them spiritually that their state of unbelief and refusal to acknowledge him as the Messiah is somehow the Lord's fault and not theirs. They're not asking Jesus to speak more plainly, to dumb it down, to make it easier to understand. They're daring him to repeat what he has already said and who he is. So Jesus responds to those 
surrounding him and baiting him and aiming to trap him to say this in verse 25. He says, I told you and you do not believe. This is so important because Jesus has told each one of us, do we believe? Do we trust? Do we commit daily? Jesus didn't often refer to himself directly as the Messiah because this word Messiah or Christ was really more than just a name. It was an occupation. It was a purpose. It meant that Jesus would be coming to fulfill the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament to restore and make right what sin had destroyed. But it was also one that would elicit a lot of political and military connotations that maybe Jesus was coming to overthrow the Roman Empire. So he doesn't say this of himself often, but they knew exactly who he was because of the prophecies. Here's a few of the things I'll mention that Jesus has told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those in crowds just in John's gospel and his ministry. In John 3, Jesus says, I am the one who came from heaven. In John 3 and 15, he says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. In John 5, 19, he says, I am the unique son of God. In John 5, 39, he says, the Hebrew scriptures all speak of me. In John 7, he says, I perfectly reveal God the Father. In John 8, he says, I always please God and never sin. Also in 8, he says, I am uniquely sent from God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. In John 9, he says, I am the son of man prophesied by Daniel. In John 10, he says, I will raise myself from the dead. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the door. And here in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. So when Jesus tells them, you do not believe, it's not because they've not heard. It's not because they don't understand. It's because they don't want what he has. When Jesus says, you do not believe, it is in the present tense, meaning this isn't a past statement of where they've been or a position they've held. He says, at this very moment, you refuse to acknowledge who I am. And they want to blame Jesus for their unbelief and their rebellion. Verses 26 and 27, it says, but Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, this is a pretty simple metaphor. He says, you know all these things. You've seen the works that I do. You've seen my ministry. You don't believe me because you don't belong to me. See, belonging to Jesus means we believe him. Belonging to Jesus means that we accept the truth that he offers us. Belonging to Jesus and being saved means we continue to acknowledge and receive and be saved. Jesus also told them that they were not true shepherds. See, these are the leaders of the church at this time. These are those who knew God's word, who had memorized it cover to cover. He says, you're not true shepherds. 
you manipulate and you mince my word for your purpose and your own glory. And he also tells them that they're not true sheep. If they were, they'd know his word. They'd know who he was. They'd be following him themselves, not surrounding him to stone him to death. Verse 28 says, And I give them eternal life. Well, these are his sheep Jesus is talking to. As the good shepherd, he says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall not perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This verse has two parts. The first says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Eternal life is not something we're waiting for when we die when Jesus returns and when we, we, we float up to the heavens to be united with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the angels of heaven, eternal life begins the moment that we commit our life to the Lord. It is not something that we're supposed to go in and out of like a room in our house. It is a spiritual commitment that we are to dwell in. He says that if we remain in him, we will never perish we will never be doomed to hell in one sense to a life without God but in another to the destruction of sin and a relationship with the enemy of God who is Satan those who have made him life have eternal life that begins that moment and if they remain in it they will never perish then he goes on to say that that neither Shall anyone snatch them out of my hand? This is a picture of the good shepherd. If we imagine a shepherd, a shepherd protects his sheep, does he not? Or does she not? This is a picture of a shepherd who protects their sheep from harm and keeps them close. They are safe and secure in the shepherd's protection. The word here for snatch means to be stolen or seized. Jesus is saying that, that those who are his sheep, those that follow him, will not be stolen or seized by the enemy. These are the hands that created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there in the beginning with God, and so God has created all things, and these same creative hands say that they will protect us if we remain in his sheepfold. This verse, verse 28, is incredibly powerful and should offer us great encouragement. However, this verse that is used to support once saved, always saved, should be well understood because taken out of context, it's read to mean that we can never be snatched away or separated from God. You ever heard something like that? It's floating around on a picture or a t-shirt. Boy, it's a good day to be alive. We can never be snatched away, right? It, it is. It's, it's almost comical how silly that reality seems in Scripture. But here's the thing. Like Adam and Eve, like Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, the sheep have a choice, don't they? These sheep can leave any time they want. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to walk and key these sheep. They will never leave me. I'm going to surround them so that they fear me and they cannot choose. No, these sheep can be stupid, right? They can be rebellious. They can have their own way. They can think they're going to find greener pastures somewhere else or new living waters, and they can wander from the shepherd. 
like Adam and Eve, like Judas, we must choose to be his sheep, to remain in him, to conquer in him, to not be snatched from him. Jesus is speaking these words during the days of Hanukkah, when surely the Maccabees, these people who were having to offer sacrifices on altars to Zeus and Hercules and false gods, to spit on their God's altar, to defile the holy temple at the fear of death. Jesus is saying these words to the Jews during these days that we might be reminded. See, the Maccabees were under siege during those days. Many were killed because they refused to succumb to idolatry. But more than those few that were killed were many who simply gave in. It's a lot easier to give in. Many sacrificed pig's blood to Zeus on the altar of God because it was easier. But those who endured saw the salvation of God and they were able to return to the temple to see it refreshed and cleansed and celebrate God's victory over darkness and evil. Turn with me to one last body of scripture, Romans chapter 8 on page 1301. Romans chapter 8. As we've said, Paul was an apostle, an apostle. He was a missionary sent out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to people like us. He had a ministry that was filled with imprisonment, with being beaten many times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And yet none of these things pulled him away from the Lord. Let's read verses 35 through 37. This same Paul, who'd suffered all these things, writes these words to us. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are counted as the sheep for the slaughter. Yet in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So some pull out from this this passage a, a, a paraphrase for their own purpose to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, the love of God and the salvation of God are different things. Now, God saved us because he loved us. But we can be out of God's presence. We can have turned from him, and that doesn't mean he doesn't love us anymore, but we are not in his protection. We are not in his sheepfold. Paul says, on the contrary to this ridiculous misinterpretation of his words, that nothing should separate us from receiving God's love. We should not allow being beaten, being persecuted, being in prison, all of the destruction of this physical world to separate us from remaining in a covenantal love with Lord God Almighty. A conqueror overcomes with the tools that they have. He says we are to be more than conquerors in Jesus because we have been given the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and we must rely on the Lord to conquer the things of this world. 
Let's read on verses 38 through 39. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says shall there. It also means should. He is saying that these things, all the evil of this world, should not be able to separate us from the love of God. But we can allow it to. We can align with the enemy. We can go our own way, and we can choose to be separated from God's love and God's salvation in our lives. The good shepherd won't let anyone snatch sheep from him. But as Deborah has taught us these last weeks ago, sheep are dumb and sometimes wander from their master. A few things I want to share with you from John chapter 10. Turn back there with me one more time to page 1236. John chapter 10, page 1236. So God's people have surrounded Jesus. Pharisees and the Sadducees, deacons and elders of that day, have surrounded our Lord and Savior, like they did many times before, asking him to repeat himself, though they didn't believe him, though they had already made up their minds, saying, how long do you keep us in suspense? We have got to be careful with God's truths. God's truths reveal to us and not find ourselves like these in this story, surrounding God, having made up our mind, frustrated with him for our unbelief, and asking him to explain himself to us once again. For those who remain in rebellion there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. They are not snatched from the Father's hand, but departing of their own free will. All week I have seen this image that John is getting at of being held. First, it's offered sarcastically by the Pharisees and the Sadducees surrounding Jesus. Their question is a picture of sorts, and it imagines that Jesus is kind of holding them by their legs as if they're floating through the air, and he's kind of restraining them from where they need to be going or what they need to be doing, which is ironic, because they question Jesus as if he's somehow holding out on them keeping them from their important purpose. Isn't that how we often feel? Like God's word, God's truth, God's laws, his ways are restraining us from the goodness of life instead of seeing the picture in what Jesus is really doing. He is trying to hold them from making great mistakes, from wandering into the hands of an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And also, 
this is the parallel that Jesus has this spiritual grip on those who are in this sheepfold with him. He says, and let's read it again in verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. For us who are in Christ Jesus, he is holding on tightly with a spiritual grip because he knows what awaits us who leave his place. It's not coercive. It's not manipulative. It's not aggressive. But with loving firmness and strength. In a moment, we're going to sing uh, a song. It is a, a remake of an old hymn titled, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's rooted in Psalm 119, and David writes about his relationship with the Lord, with the Lord and how he kind of wanders sometimes. He, he leaves the sheephold, so to speak. He makes choices he doesn't want to make, but he comes back to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I see that you hold me fast. And he wants the Lord to hold him fast. I see this image of the Lord holding our feet firmly in his ground. I pray that we would refuse this false doctrine that has infiltrated God's people in the entire world that waters down God's love and salvation and reduces sin to acceptable loss. That we would take seriously God's love and salvation and security for those who remain held fast and conquer in his name. To God be the glory. Amen. When I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter will prevail. He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hope through life's fearful path.
Justice has been satisfied. He 